morning. morning. Welcome to uh, our 9 o'clock service. Some of you were dancing during that video. No. Uh, well, I'm glad to be with you here this morning. As John already said, a beautiful day, so you all get extra credit for being here this morning as we begin this new series. I'm beginning a series this morning on questions that many people have in our day about the Christian faith. And as I thought about this, these are not just questions that, um, that you know, let's say, uh, people who are not churchgoers have, maybe, but really churchgoers have. I think, and today, more perhaps than ever, uh, these things are kind of coming together. More and more as I talk to friends and meet, talk to people, the questions that we, there used to be this hard division, you know, between who churchgoer people had these kind of questions and non-churchgoing people had these different questions, and more and more they seem like we have a lot of the same questions, maybe entering them at a different place. So that's what this series is about. For the last two decades, give or take a few years, there's been a unique phenomenon that has taken place that I've read about, maybe you have read about. In one sense, our culture has become more and more non-religious, more and more non-religious. Just in the last 20 years, what they call mainline church attendance has dropped almost 40%. And in this case, I'm talking about Christian churches. Main, what are mainline Christian churches? Well, you know, we, they're, they're the more, you might say, theologically liberal-leaning uh, mainline churches over the, that happened in the 20th century. Those churches, you know, mainline, maybe it's Methodist, maybe it's Presbyterian, maybe Baptist. These mainline churches, those, because there's many, you know, as you know, denominations within each of these different branches, those churches have lost almost 40% of their attendance just in the, since 2020, or I'm sorry, 2000, since the year 2000. Also, even the Catholic Church, okay, a very, very big church in our country, um, they measure their attendance by baptisms, that's how they measure it. Just since 2020, Catholic baptisms in America are down 34%. Okay. Not since 1950, since 2020. It's pretty significant. So at now, at the same time that that has been true, there has been an increase, actually, in tendance in response to people who are going to or what they call orthodox teaching Christian churches. I hope this is one. In other words, what do they mean by that? They mean churches that have actually um, teach and, and focus on the core teachings of the Bible, right, that have been around for many, many, many uh, 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 millennia, for, for generations. Churches that have focused on what they call orthodox teaching, those churches, when the trend is going very different in, in these other areas, that one particular trend is going up. Now, the explanation, at least as I've read it, why is this true in some of these articles, is that they say that people... Everyday people like you and me have an innate need, an innate desire, whether or not they're religious or not, to connect with God, and they're not finding that kind of connection with God in the things of this world all the more. And they're finding their way, whether they were grew up in a church and left it or were never in a church, they're finding their way into places that are doing more, let's call it orthodox teaching of the scripture. I would say this, I've seen this hunger even among some of my own friends and family. Okay, I I have a a large circle like many of you do, many non-church going friends, and I would love for us, the point of this series, all the more to be a church 
that's doing everything we can do to engage people wherever they are, wherever, they're, wherever they are today in the church or outside of the church with the message of the gospel, right? That's my hope. That's my desire. We need to get better at doing that. Now, many Christian beliefs, it's all by way of introduction to this series, many Christian beliefs, you might say, are self-evident. What do I mean by that? In other words, you don't need to explain them. What would be self-evident Christian beliefs, whether you grew up in the church or not? You know, love your neighbor. Most people would say, I get that. It's not just a Christian belief, but you'd say, Christian belief, they should love their neighbor. Christians ought to be generous to the poor. Christians, in some sense, you would hope this could be true again for non-Christian religions as well, but that they are, um, they're unselfish, or they, that's, at least that's an impulse, right? So generous to the poor, generous in general, loving your neighbor. These are what I call self-evident beliefs. You don't necessarily need to talk about them, but many Christian beliefs are not self-evident, but there are good reasons for those beliefs, and if we want to help engage a hungry culture, we need to better understand those reasons, because some are not so self-evident. Some are not so obvious about the Christian faith, and in the last many years, the faith, the Christian faith, I would argue, but others would too, has been co-opted Okay, by interests that have distorted the core message of the Christian faith. And I would say have kept many people, even in my larger circles, from actually even investigating the Christian faith. What are those core uh, 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 interests? How has the message been distorted? Two simple ways. Christianity is not about politics, and Christianity, nor is it about personal fulfillment, right? It's, Christianity is it's not a way to get power, right? Think about that. It's not the point of the Christian faith, to get power, nor is Christianity a way to, find, to become a better you, okay? That's not what it is either. These two big ideas... I think, have got, have sort of co-opted for the popular culture, the popular imagination. Well, this is what Christianity is. It's about political power, personal power, or it's becoming a better you. You know, five steps to become a better fill-in-the-blank. And so people say, listen, there's all kinds of stuff in the culture. I'm, I'm so sick and tired of politics, I don't need that. And there, the, 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 whatever self-help the Christian church has got, there's better stuff at Browns or Noble, so I don't need that either. But the Christian faith is neither a play for power or a way to become a better you, nor is the Christian faith good advice about what we must do for God, okay? It's good news about what he has done for us, what he has done for you. Very fundamental, okay? If we truly desire to engage the spiritually hungry people in our world, we need to better understand these questions and learn how to talk about them. That's the point of the next seven weeks. First question, is the Bible really the Word of God? Or is the Bible really contain the words of God? Pretty basic. Now, some of you, it's a snoozer, I'm saying, you're saying to yourself. Maybe you're there, okay? Maybe some of you, you're not, but the question is, the people that are not here today that are in your circle, this is a pretty fundamental question. 
I mean, all the, I mean if, if you take the Bible out of Christianity, what do you have from the sense of answering questions? So the Bible is a pretty, pretty fundamental question about whether or not any of these questions make sense. Is the Bible really the words of God? Now, before we take a look in the 22 minutes or whatever we have left this morning in the, in the context of a sermon, it's important that we look at a question or that we acknowledge the question of how our culture understands truth claims, right? Sometimes you've got to understand the context of a question before you can really address the question. A question like that could be answered differently at different times, right? How I would answer that question to a five-year-old even or a 25-year-old, right? Context is everything. But today, because when people say, is the Bible really the word of God? Another way of saying this, is the Bible really true? Well, we need to better understand how our culture understands truth claims. Let me talk about two words in, in two minutes that you almost never hear in church, okay? But uh, they're worthwhile for this sermon. That is modernism and postmodernism, okay? Stay with me. Modernism and postmodernism. What are the modernism and post? They're just words that talk about, let's say, the, the cultural movement of our culture. Now, modernism, in the broader sense, is a movement that you would start really in the, in the time of the Enlightenment, when, the, when America became a nation, 18th century. Think of it, more or less. And modernism goes from about the middle of the 18th century, the days of George Washington, until the middle of the 20th century. And modernism, as a movement, cultural, intellectual movement, modernism tried to squeeze all questions of truth into types that could be weighed, that could be measured, that could be verified. If it can't be proved scientifically, it can't be true. This is a broad stroke of what modernism is. It's like the hard sciences. It's like you take all questions, even questions like this. Is the Bible the word of God? It's like, and you have to answer it the way you'd answer a chemistry question, the way you'd answer a, a physics question, okay? It's oversimplified, but that's really what, in a sense, modernism tried to do. And what that did for, the, for this book, which is our topic this morning, what it did for this book is it birthed Stay with me, I'm almost done. Stay, uh, it birthed what was called in the late 19th and early 20th century this field of thinking called textual criticism. Now, what textual criticism is, is essentially that people tried to say, the answer to the question, is the Bible true? It's a textual question. It has to do with the integrity of the text, grammar, syntax, the transmission of the text from the, you know, the time of Jesus and the apostles till now. How is it translated? Was the, what about the numbers? What about the words? What about the languages? So it be, it, it, you become to answer the question, you, I, I remember this from college, did Shakespeare really write those plays, right? Because how much information do we have going back to the 16th century? Did, was William Shakespeare really the author of Shakespeare? That's a textual question, okay? There's books written about that question. Well, this goes back 1,500 years earlier, and what happened in modernism, when everything was about what could be weighed, what could be measured, what could be verified, if it can't be proven scientifically, it can't be true, is the Bible became all about the text, it's not all bad news, but that's something that's important for us to keep in mind, right? 
because that not all questions about truth have to do with textual criticism. Now, postmodernism, almost done my little lesson, history lesson here, started in the mid-20th century, which basically covers everybody in this room, right? In other words, we are like it or not, right? We have, it's like we're in water. Well, I'm not a fish. You are, you know? We are, whether you like it or not, a postmodern culture, okay? What is postmodernism? In a sense, it's a strong reaction against everything modern. Postmodernism is skeptical, listen very carefully, of any explanation of life and truth that claims to be valid for all cultures, all traditions, all races. One of the definitions of, of postmodernism, right, very against the modernistic view, anybody that says, you know, all people are X, Y, or Z, right, all are sinners, that's one example, cannot be true. Postmodernism instead focuses on the relative truth of each person. My truth, your truth, his truth, and her truth. All statements about the way things are turn into variations of the way I see them and the way I experience them. Okay? What suits me? Here's now, I'm done. My little history lesson. The important point is this. The Bible is not simply a historical text. It certainly is that, but that's not all it is. Right? Modernism. The Bible is not simply or merely a historical text, nor is it a set of ideas that you or I can adapt to my personal use, to my personal brand, to my personal identity, nor is it simply a set of ideas that I can adapt to my personal use. And if you go to the Bible with either one of those lenses, you will be confused. You will be disappointed. Your friends will be confused. Your friends will be disappointed. Having never experienced what the Bible actually is. That's the problem in many cases today. People are saying thanks but no thanks because they're not even looking at the Bible, approaching the Bible, reading the Bible, and understanding what it is. It's not simply historical text, nor is it a set of ideas that you can adapt, you know, my truth and your truth. Now, let's go to the Bible. <laughs> let's go, one passage of scripture for the time that we have. Second Peter, because the Bible answers this question too, or tries to. What the heck is this thing? The apostles have been asked. First, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. Just six verses for the time that we have this morning. Is the Bible really the word of God? Even here, the apostles, of course. If we have people asking it today, when they were just writing the Bible, the New Testament, they were being answered, these questions were being asked then. Verse 16, for we do not follow. He's on the defense, Peter. Cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus in power. He's talking about the second coming. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the apostles. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also... In addition to that revelation, we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. 
and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand, okay? He's answering questions. That no prophecy of scripture or teaching came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, right? They didn't cook this up in their, in their study. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, it is a joint venture, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what can I say in 15 minutes? Number one, is the Bible the, the word of God? Number one, the Bible is a revelation. I'm talking about what does it say about itself, okay? That's what it's saying. The Bible, what he's referring to in this first paragraph, what Peter is referring to, you know, this mountain, this majestic glory, he's talking about the transfiguration. Okay, some of you heard that, some of you, but it's, it's, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? It's an event when the apostles, the inner circle, James, Peter, and James, and John, went up on a mountain outside the Sea of Galilee, and something super bizarre happened. Okay, way beyond the questions of textual criticism. You're never going to prove this under, under a microscope, okay? What happened was Jesus transformed into some kind of being of light and a cloud came over. I mean, it was super, unbelievably supernatural. That's what he's talking about. And not only did that happen, okay, but he's deliberately using in this description, Peter, because remember, his, the Bible for these friends who he's writing to was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. They were writing it in the moment. He's using, deliberately using language from the revelation that Moses got right out of Exodus chapter 33. When he says majestic glory, that's where that comes from. And when he says in verse 18, the sacred mountain. Now I've been to Israel around the Sea of Galilee where this happened there's no real big mountains around the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of Cobb's Hill, in other words. But point is, what he's saying is, okay, what happened to us, Peter, James, and John, when we were standing there with Jesus, when he transformed in this being light, and out of the majestic glory, Old Testament language, the voice of God the Father said, this is my son, wait for it, listen to him. The words that are going to eventually come out of his mouth are going to be super duper important. It's a revelation. That's what he's trying to say. That's what Peter is referring to. In this revelation to these three guys and many others that were not so dramatic, right? Because he says in the last verse, prophecy never had its origin in the human in the human will, but prophets, plural now, he's talking about Old Testament and New Testament, if you read the logic of the passage, though they were just human people like you and me, God spoke through them. He's saying this revelation, okay, and others, not just the transfiguration, was revealed the mysteries of the faith and personal knowledge in Christ. This is where they were made known. The questions that aren't self-evident, like, what the heck is that? The cross of Jesus Christ. How is the cross of Jesus Christ? Which many people in the day thought it was a failure. Many people said this is, this is capital punishment. Many people said this is the end of Christianity. Why would the Son of God, the so-called Messiah, be nailed to a cross? Okay? 
That's not so self-evident. How about the resurrection? We talked about it last week. That's not so self-evident. What in the world is the resurrection of the dead? Okay? And what about the forgiveness of sins? I mean, I could go on. See, these questions aren't self-evident. These questions we need to talk about, we need to think about. Scripture is the written form of this revelation, providing people, you and me, with an enduring witness to the work of Christ. One verse. Jesus answering the same question. You can see the disciples, the disciples, they were perhaps pre-modern. They weren't modern or post-modern, but they had the same confusion too. They're walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, seeing the miracles. They were at the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? Because these things have to be revealed. You might say, that's weird, that's crazy. I like, I like Christianity less than I liked it before. Uh, uh, okay, but at least you know what you're dealing with. It's not a textbook. It's not a textual criticism exercise. It's not a personal branding exercise. I'll take what I like, I cherry pick, and I say, this is my version of Christianity. No, no, no. No private interpretation. It's a revelation. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew, Luke 24. He said to them, you know, I don't think the apostles had this on the refrigerator, you know. How foolish you are. Because they're walking with the resurrected Jesus, just to give you the context. They're on this row, I think it's called the road to Emmaus, or from Emmaus to Emmaus. And Jesus is sort of disguised. They're so discouraged, so overwhelmingly sad because the guy they thought was the answer to their problems had been crucified. And so they're, they're, they're sort of hanging their heads and Jesus is being clever and coy and interesting. This is an odd passage of scripture. He goes, hey guys, what gives? And they say, what planet are you, this is my paraphrase, what planet are you from? All these horrible things just happened. How could you not miss this? And then Jesus says these words. How foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets, now speaking of the Old Testament, have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You see, that is tucked in there in the 39 books of the Old Testament, but it's not so obvious. It's not about feeding the poor and, and being a generous These are deep theological truths. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the Pentateuch, first five books of your Old Testament, and all the prophets, he explained to them, wait for it, what was said in all the scriptures. Not just a little passage here, a little passage. All the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus is saying, oh my goodness, in that one verse, listen, The whole thing is about me. That is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what it's about. And if you're going there for some other reason, to look for some other answer to a question, if you think the Bible is a textbook, if you think it's some kind of personal branding book, you've completely missed it. I was on a ski trip a month ago, and it was with a a couple friends of mine. One of them, not a church background guy, not a church guy. That's not his background. And we're sitting on the ski lift, and he, he just remembered a conversation. He said, I want to ask you a question. You know, and we're going up this chairlift. And he said, are you trying to tell me? It was like, you know, someone hit, we weren't even talking. Then we were just kind of smiling and looking up at this mountain. But he just said, it was like he was remembering from the day before. He goes, are you trying to tell me? A lot of passion, right? He said, are you trying to tell me? <laughs> you trying to tell me that it's all about one guy? I mean, one guy? Who's what he did and what he said, the whole thing about history, everything all boils down to one guy. I'm thinking, he's kind of getting what I was saying the day before. 
Is it all about one guy? And I said, first of all, I said, listen, I so appreciate what you're saying. The, the fact that this sounds crazy to you or seems kind of crazy to you, I want you to know it is kind of a crazy claim. Okay? But I said, he goes, is, if that's what you're saying, he goes, it's, that's nuts. Although he didn't say nuts. But anyway, he said, <laughs> I, and I said, I, so after I let him go, I said, you know what? I, I respect what you're saying. But you know the answer to the question is? Take a breath. Basically, yes. <laughs> In a sense, that's what it's about. Okay? As Christians, many of us take for granted God's self-revelation. But think about it, friends. It's nothing short of remarkable that God has spoken to us. He's an infinite, eternal, incomprehensible creator. We are finite creatures, every single one of us. And God is not merely greater in size than me, right, than you. It's he's immeasurable in essence. Remember when Solomon built the temple? I think it's for 2 Kings chapter 8, or I mean 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon says this, when it's all done, this beautiful, gorgeous temple, but does God really dwell here on the earth? After this, he's looking at this gorgeous temple, right? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much more this little building that I built? This immense, incomprehensible God has stooped down to speak to you and to... He's made himself known to us so that in turn we might know him and tr- if, if, uh, it, it, truly, if not comprehensively, and we might know ourselves truly, and we might see the world despite its brokenness, right? See past it to the beautiful, beautiful thing that he made it to be, okay? C.S. Lewis said, famous line, I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. That's what Jesus is saying here. Wow, guys. I don't know if that's what you see in the Bible. I don't know if that's what your friends are looking for in the Bible, but that's what it is. Okay, that's pretty important. That's what it is. And this is what's behind the invitation to read and study the Bible for our daily lives. Okay, I'm out of time. Point two, the Bible is not a rule book, but an epic about redemption. To call the Bible the words of God is not to suggest, this sort of a version of it, people's vision, that it fell from a parachute. You know, so like, we found it, right? And we dug it out. Okay, that's not what the Bible is at all. Just some quick facts. Some of you know this, some of you don't. The Bible, okay, is written in three languages. I'm talking about the original. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It was written on three continents. Asia, Africa, Europe. Forty different authors. Oh my goodness, you can't get hardly two scholars to agree on anything. Right? Forty different authors. Listen, wait for it. Over the course of 1,500 years. It can't be the parachute version, right? Yes, it's a divinely inspired book, but as Peter says, human authors. This is how God chose to do it. 
That's why it's messy. It's a beautiful mess in a sense. It's a beautiful piece of literature. You can see, if you know Greek and Hebrew sometimes, the different, you can see Paul's personality versus John's personality versus Peter's personality versus Moses' personality versus David's. You can see that in the text. You see, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's what it is, right? Though divine human authors. When I say the Bible is not a rule book, it's an epic. What's an epic? This is just a definition. A long work portraying heroic deeds and adventures covering an extended period of time. That's a good definition of what the Bible is. Wow. Wow. 1,500 years, 40 authors. But let me say something about the Bible. It's a whole other sermon in a sense. Okay? It is internally consistent, historically accurate. Hundred, there's hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Hundreds of them. Okay? Let me just give you one for sake of time. There are three that happen on the cross itself. And they all come from the 22nd Psalm. Now some of you know this, but some of you may not. And there's, all, there's, I, there's no doubt. Dead Sea Scrolls. Write a note and go to and do a little history. That only happened, in the, I think, in the, in the early part of the 20th century. But that, that archaeological discovery was a game changer. I think all 39 books of the Old Testament were validated in a manner of speaking through this ancient discovery in Israel, okay? Now, that said that the 22nd Psalm, through various and sundry modern ways of understanding things, is probably 1,000 years to 900 years older than the Gospel of Matthew. Guess what the 22nd Psalm says? They pierced my hands and my feet. Okay? They pierced my... I mean, it's just one of hundreds. So I can't prove to you, you shouldn't... I, I, you, you can't prove to your friends the Bible is the Word of God. But oh my goodness, it's an unbelievable book. Okay? The Bible is not a rule book. It is an epic about redemption. Let me throw this slide up here. Again, this isn't proving anything, but uh, it, sh it should pique our interest. These are just some basic great uh, writers that we know about, right, in our history books. Homer existed almost 1,000 years before Jesus. There's 643 copies of the Iliad uh, floating around. That's a lot of copies. But the, the, the first one that is dated almost 2,000 years after Homer lived. Okay, well, there's a big gap. Plato. Okay, the Republic, if you've read it, if you remember it. The first one they found was 1,300 years later. There's only seven copies. I mean, original copies, okay? Herodotus, great historian, same thing, same time frame. 1,300 years, eight copies. Aristotle, okay? 1,300 years later, they finally found copies. A lot could happen in 30. There's 49 The New Testament. Finished around 100 A.D. The first copies they have, 30 years later, there are over 6,000 copies. And they keep finding more of the New Testament. So is that a miracle? I'm saying it's a miracle, but it's kind of a miracle, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. This is an amazing thing. The Bible is not a rule book. Boy, if that's what your friends or what you think the Bible is... 
you have completely missed it. Of course the Bible has commands in it. The Bible's not even a doctrine book, although there are amazing, beautiful doctrines in there about Jesus, about God, about humanity. But altogether, it's an epic about God's work of redemption. It boils down to Luke 24. Listen, everything's about me. And the whole point of Jesus coming into the world was to die for your sins. These are spiritual truths that aren't self-evident, okay? Lastly, the Bible is God's authority. The Bible is the authority of God exercised through the Scriptures. Okay, guys, I'm out of time. Is the Bible an authority? Of course it is an authority. But what does it mean by it's an authority? Right? It's, Jesus never wrote any books. Isn't that interesting? I mean, John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't say, and then they went down and wrote it down in a book. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all, here's the big word that we're sometimes afraid of or confused with, all authority has been given to me. See, the Bible is God's authority through the Scriptures. Are the Scriptures important? Absolutely. Are the Scriptures divinely inspired? Absolutely. But the point of the Scriptures, even John's Gospel says at the end, there's a lot more to be said. Jesus did a lot more and said a lot more. Friends, I can't give you any more. I'm giving you what I can give you. John 20, verses 30 and 31. But these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. That's what the Bible's about. And that's what you and I need to do, should, should be wanting to do, not only when we come to it ourselves, but when we share with our friends. Let me just put that side third up, guys, and we'll be done. Just a little, some, some uh, takeaways. What, what, read, the, read for God to speak to you. Okay? I don't think God's going to give me new revelation. In other words, he's gonna, there's going to be a 67th book of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But the Word of God is active and living. Right? That's what the Bible says. In other words, yes, it's about his history and about Israel and about the church and about people like Moses and David and Peter and James. These are, these are historical things. But God works through them to speak to you. Read the Bible. Not, yes, read it for information, but read it for God to speak to you. Read it daily. Daily. Do you read the Bible, well, once in a while? Well, then don't expect God to change your life. It's the living word of God. And respond to what you read in prayer. The Bible is, a, is meant to be a, yes, it's God speaking to you. Guess what? You need to speak back. Right? You need to take the word of God that strikes your heart, that speaks to you about something specific in your life. Oh, my goodness. Who's reading my mail? God is. <laughs> Hebrews 4.12, it's a living, it's like a, a, a two-edged sword that pierces. This is a metaphor. Soul from uh, 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 marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, all things are exposed before the living God. It's not meant to scare you. It's saying, listen, the word of God is, you can learn, God wants to get right to the nut of what's going on in your life and say, this is where I want to not only uh, remind you of some things that are out of line in your life, but to heal you, to breathe life into you, to turn you into the man or the woman I've made you to be, okay? And once, when, God, when that light turns on for you, then, this is, this is the whole point of prayer, 
Sure, we should pray for our sicknesses, our country. These things, we should pray for these things. We should pray for people. But most of the prayers in the New Testament, it's a whole other sermon series, the Apostle Paul's prayers, they're all, uh, they're all selfishly spiritual prayers. Open my eyes that I might have the inner, uh, that I might know the love of God. It's, it's depth, it's breadth. You know, that I might, you might do immeasurably more in me. Open up my understanding that I might see wonderful things out of your law. Psalm 119. In other words, the real, ultimately, many of the prayers are, God, help me. Open my understanding. Help me to see you for who you are. Help me to understand who I am in relationship to you. And help me become the man or woman you've made me to be. Amen? This is what the Bible is about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we don't claim in, in 30, 40 minutes to be able to exhaust such a huge question But Lord, I pray for us, everyone in this room, start with us, Lord, that I, that we might be uh, men and women, followers of Christ, if that's how we uh, think of ourselves, that we might be people who 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 are still amazed that the God of the universe, who holds everything together, who's beyond human description and comprehension, who's not a bigger version of me, who's, who's, who's the creator of the universe, who holds everything together, that this God also is a God whose heart is for people that he created, whose focus is on sinners like me, us, Lord, and we pray that you would open up our understanding to, to help ourselves and then our friends see that the word of God hidden in plain sight is one of the greatest gifts, the most amazing gift, through which we experience your power, through which we connect with your authority, through which our lives are are, uh, made new. And we ask this. Help us too, Lord, to become a church that that wants to connect people uh, that wants to be a, to, to, to share bread, so to speak, with people, with people who are hungering in a world that has lost ever more, seems to be losing its way. There is a truth. There is a God who loves them. And there's a love letter of a kind right here. Help us to share it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, thanks for being here. Those of you who are new, we say this every Sunday, go and say hello to someone at our guest table. We'd love to get to know you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.